Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero-G, and I feel fine. When I feel up, okay, I'm on. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 161 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, The Decision, Part 2. We left off last week on August 17, 1968, with a tentative approval of a lunar orbit Apollo 8 mission, depending upon the Apollo 7 flight. But preparations still needed to be made for an Earth orbital Apollo 8 mission if Apollo 7 was not successful or if any other unsurmountable problems occurred. Perhaps the most significant point about the lunar orbit flight proposed for Apollo 8 was that the command and service modules would fly the same route to the moon as would be used for the actual lunar landing. NASA officials realized that this was risky, since Apollo 7 had not yet qualified the spacecraft when their tentative decision was made. And data from that launch using the Saturn 1B would not help them decide whether the Saturn 5 could make the lunar mission. Apollo program manager General Samuel Phillips formally set the plan into motion in a directive issued on August 19th. Because of Administrator Webb's restrictions about waiting until the performance of Apollo 7 was known, Earth orbital objectives were still listed, but crew assignments were shifted and the mission was moved forward one flight. That same day, NASA publicly announced the flight as an expansion of Apollo 7 although agency spokesmen said that the exact content of the mission had not been decided. Command and Service Module 103 arrived at the Cape in mid-August and testing began. Some modifications were necessary, but in most cases, no hardware changes that might cause delays were acceptable. Associate Administrator Miller kept Deputy Administrator Payne informed of the status noting in detail how many days the work schedule lagged and why. These holdups were usually minor, although Hurricane Gladys did cause an additional two-day delay. Payne was still concerned about manning the Saturn V because of the pogo problem. Phillips told him 
that the Apollo leaders had decided about two weeks after Apollo 6 to plan for a manned flight, but to revert to unmanned if necessary. Payne also questioned the reliability of the service propulsion module. Miller reviewed its test history and reported that a complete flight system of the present configuration had never failed to fire. Of all configurations, only four firings had failed in 3,200 attempts, and Miller assured Payne that none of the problems encountered were characteristic of the present engine. During a session of Miller's certification board in Huntsville on September 19th, the Saturn V was given a clean bill of health, and the members agreed that the launch vehicle was no longer a constraint to manned flight. In the meantime, Huntsville and Houston had worked out an agreement on payload weight. The load for Saturn 503, which would be used for Apollo 8, was set at 39,800 kilograms, which included 9,000 kilograms for the lunar module test article. As a side note, a fully fueled production lunar lander scheduled for subsequent missions would weigh 14,500 kilograms. From October 11th through October 22nd, the magnificent flying machine Apollo 7 had a very successful mission clearing a major hurdle for a lunar orbit Apollo 8 mission. On November 7th, the certification board looked at all parts of the Apollo 8 spacecraft, launch vehicle, launch complex, mission control network, and spacesuits. A C-Prime crew safety review board had already studied these items for Phillips and had concluded that the Apollo 8 space vehicle was safe for a manned flight. Miller's board concurred. Now it was up to Payne and the Apollo executives to decide whether Apollo 8 would fly to the moon. At the Apollo executives meeting on November 10th, Phillips summarized the lunar orbit proposal. James discussed launch vehicle status. Lowe gave spacecraft status. Kraft talked about flight operations. Slayton outlined the flight plan. And Rocco Patron reported that the Cape could be ready by December 10th, although there would not be a lunar launch window until the 21st. Phillips said he recommended that NASA go for lunar orbit. Miller then asked Lowe and Phillips to list the things that were absolutely essential for a safe trip. The program leaders replied that the service propulsion system had to work to get the spacecraft out of lunar orbit, and there had to be at least 60 hours of oxygen remaining to get the crew back to Earth. Redundancies could support the environmental system, barring a major break of the main structure. And the fuel cells could handle the power demands with only one of the three working, unless, of course, there was a complete electrical short. There were risks, yes, but these risks 
would be there on all missions. There was no way to ensure perfect safety. Next, Miller asked for the views of the attending Apollo executives. Walter F. Burke from McDonnell Douglas said, The S-4B can do any of the missions described, but I favor circumlunar rather than lunar orbit since there has been only one manned command service module. Hilliard Page of General Electric said, The checkout equipment is doing the same thing it has done before. There are no reservations from a reliability standpoint, and NASA should go and is ready to go into lunar orbit. BP Blazingame of AC Electronics said, We have carefully examined the guidance equipment and consider it ready for a lunar orbit mission. It is the right size step. Stark Draper from MIT said, No reservations. B.O. Evans from IBM said, Go. R.W. Hubner from IBM said, The instrument unit is ready. George M. Bunker from Martin Marietta said, The presentation here today makes a persuasive case to go for lunar orbit. T.A. Wilson from Boeing said, We have confidence in the hardware. It is right to go for lunar orbit. Lee Atwood from North American said, This is what we came to the party for. Robert E. Hunter from Philco Ford said, We have no reservations about being able to support the complete mission. Thomas F. Morrow from Chrysler said, We have no hardware on this mission and perhaps can be even more objective. I believe we should go for lunar orbit, but the public should be aware that there are risks. William P. Gwynn from United Aircraft said, I am impressed by the pros and cons of risk, but I believe General Phillips' recommendation is the right one. Joseph Glavin from Grumman said, We also have no hardware on this mission except a test article, but the design of the mission makes a lot of sense. It is one we should do. William Bergen of North American said, I agree with Morrow that lunar orbit has more risk. It is questionable if we will get and can expect the same high degree of performance from systems as we got on Apollo 7. But a repeat flight is a risk with no gain. G.H. Stoner from Boeing said, I endorse the recommendation without reservation. And Gerald T. Smiley from General Electric said, Morale is now high. Less than lunar orbit would impact this morale. Thus, on November 10, 1968, a second group voted yes on the proposition to send man on his first flight to the vicinity of the moon. The next day, Miller told Payne he had discussed the proposal with the Science and Technology Advisory Committee 
and the President's Science Advisory Committee, and both of these prestigious groups favored the mission. The manned spaceflight chief said he also agreed that NASA should undertake a lunar orbit mission as its next step toward manned lunar landing. Payne listened to the presentations by Phillips, James, Lowe, Kraft, and Patrone on November 11th. The same day, Payne asked Gerald Trzynski if the tracking network would be ready and Lieutenant General Vincent G. Houston if the Department of Defense could support the mission. He called in key members of his staff and the directors of the three manned spaceflight centers for their statements. The acting administrator also telephoned Frank Borman and learned that the astronauts supported the mission wholeheartedly. Payne then approved Phillips' recommendation. Phillips wired the field centers to be ready for a lunar orbit flight on December 21st. NASA had crossed another Rubicon in its decision-making, this time a historic one. Before we leave this subject, I want to speak a little about the possible influence the Soviet Zond 4 and 5 missions may have had on the decision to make Apollo 8 a lunar orbit mission. Zond 4 was covered in episode 151, and Zond 5 was covered in episode 153. I hope you recall that Zond 5 was launched on September 15th and became the first spacecraft to circle the moon and return to land on Earth. On September 18th, the spacecraft flew around the moon. The closest distance was 1,950 kilometers. High-quality photographs of the Earth were taken at a distance of 90,000 kilometers, and a biological payload of two Russian tortoises, wine flies, mealworms, plants, seeds, bacteria, and other living matter was included in the flight. Now that we have some perspective, I'll continue. In Frank Borman's autobiography, he described a meeting with Deke Slayton in early August 1968, where Slayton told him, quote, We just got word from the CIA that the Russians are planning a lunar flyby before the end of the year. We want to change Apollo 8 from an Earth orbital to a lunar orbital flight. I know that doesn't give you much time, so I have to ask you, do you want to do it or not? As expected, Borman replied yes, and further wrote, I found out later that the Soviets were a lot closer to a manned lunar mission than we would have liked. Only about a month after I talked to Slayton, the Russians sent an unmanned spacecraft, Zond 5, into lunar orbit and returned it safely to the Earth. We now know that Zond 5 did not go into lunar orbit. It was just a flyby. But what about the rest of the statements? Did the Zond 4 and 5 missions affect the decision to change Apollo 8 to a lunar orbit mission? Until now, the only evidence that intelligence information about the Soviets sending astronauts around the moon prompted NASA 
to take the risky move and send Apollo 8 there first were claims made by the Apollo 8 crew. Extensive reviews of NASA records did not support this claim. In fact, there is considerable evidence that NASA officials made the decision primarily because the lunar module for the flight would not be ready and there was little point to flying Apollo 8 on any other mission. Recently, a declassified CIA document emerged that lends some weight to Borman's account. It is a memo from October 1968 reporting on the activities of the CIA's Foreign Missile and Space Analysis Center, which is abbreviated FMSAC and pronounced FUMSAC. FUMSAC was established in late 1963 to give the CIA the ability to perform technical analysis of foreign, primarily Soviet, missiles and spacecraft. FUMSAC in particular became very good at trajectory analysis, taking radar and other data on the flights of foreign missiles and rockets and determining their capabilities based upon their flight paths. The memo is a general account of FUMSAC's activities over the previous year. It states, In the space area, FUMSAC has the exclusive lead over all elements of the intelligence community and on almost daily basis provides direct intelligence support, including many personal briefings to the senior officials of NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Council, and the President's Science Advisory Council. End quote. Among the center's accomplishments in 1968, Carl Duckett, the CIA's Deputy Director for Science and Technology, stated, The likelihood that the U.S. will conduct a manned circumlunar flight with the Apollo 8 vehicle in December is a result of the direct intelligence support that FUMSAC has provided to NASA on present and future Soviet plans in space. End quote. This memo was declassified in 2002, but not released until 2003. It has gone overlooked by researchers until now. Now, the most comprehensive analysis of the Apollo 8 lunar decision is contained in Charles Murray and Catherine Bly Cox's 1989 book titled Apollo, The Race to the Moon. Murray and Cox devoted 10 pages to the subject. They clearly stated that the decision to send Apollo 8 on a circumlunar mission was overwhelmingly determined by schedule and not competition. In those 10 pages, they did not mention the Soviet activities. I hope you recall from the previous episode, Apollo officials started initial discussions of a circumlunar mission in the spring of 1968, primarily as a theoretical option. 
The proposed mission was seriously evaluated by NASA officials in early August when it became clear that the lunar module originally scheduled for the upcoming mission was delayed. This meant that in order to stay on schedule for testing both the Saturn V and the command and service modules, NASA would have to launch a mission into high Earth orbit without the lunar module. George Lowe, the director of the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office, advocated that in place of a high-orbit mission, they should fly a circumlunar mission instead. During several days in August, Lowe discussed this with various senior officials before taking it directly to NASA Administrator James Webb. Webb tentatively agreed to the plan but withheld final approval until after Apollo 7 flew in October. It was a bold decision for NASA officials to make. None of the official NASA records on this subject or George Lowe's diary mention the Soviet plans to conduct a circumlunar flight. They were certainly aware of Soviet circumlunar efforts, but there were no official NASA records indicating that it was even considered in the decision-making process. The CIA had been monitoring Soviet space development throughout the year. In April 1968, the CIA produced a Memorandum to Holders supplement to an earlier 1967 National Intelligence Estimate on the Soviet space program. Although the CIA was producing National Intelligence estimates on the Soviet space program every two years, enough had happened that they wanted to update recipients of the earlier document. The memorandum to holders included a table of space launches that mentioned the March 1968 Soviet Zond-4 mission, which it designated a circumlunar simulation. According to the memo, the mission was a partial success, which was explained in a footnote as all phases of the mission appear successful except re-entry recovery. Zond-4's mission had also been covered in the press at the time, so it certainly would have been well known to NASA officials without access to classified intelligence reports. But the April memo specifically addressed Soviet circumlunar plans. It said, quote, The Soviets will probably attempt a manned circumlunar flight both as a preliminary to a manned lunar mission and as an attempt to lessen the psychological impact of the Apollo program. In the National Intelligence Estimate dated November 1, 1967, we estimated that the Soviets would attempt such a mission in the first half of 1968 or the first half of 1969 or even as early as late 1967 for an anniversary of the revolution spectacular. The failure of the unmanned circumlunar test in November 1967 leads us now to estimate that a manned attempt is unlikely before the last half of 1968, with 1969 being more likely. 
the Soviets soon will probably attempt another unmanned circumlunar flight. End quote. An accompanying bar chart made the same point with the last six months of 1968 shaded as early as possible for a circumlunar flight and all of 1969 shaded as more likely. The October 1968 FUMSAC memo tied the CIA's information on Soviet circumlunar plans to NASA's August Apollo 8 decision. Because there are no details, it is difficult to interpret this alongside the April memo, which stated that, quote, a manned circumlunar attempt is unlikely before the last half of 1968, with 1969 being more likely, end quote. One possibility is that the CIA obtained new information after the April memo that led them to believe that a Soviet manned circumlunar flight was more likely in early 1969 or even late 1968 than they had assumed only a few months earlier, thus increasing the pressure on NASA. Perhaps the CIA somehow learned about the upcoming Zond 5 flight, which took place in September, and that prompted the CIA to reassess their predicted timeline. But another possible interpretation is that FUMSAC was exaggerating its role in NASA's circumlunar decision, or at least assuming that the center had played a greater role than it had in convincing NASA leadership. Without more details, it is still not possible to know for sure. Even if the CIA did provide extensive information to NASA about Soviet circumlunar plans, that does not necessarily mean that, as the memo indicates, the NASA decision was a result of CIA information. Only the NASA officials who made the Apollo 8 decision knew what factors influenced them most. That was primarily George Lowe, whose records point to the Apollo schedule being the primary influence. Certainly, the race to the moon with the Soviets established the larger context in which all decisions were made, but the preponderance of evidence still supports the conclusion that it was the Apollo schedule that drove the decision, not specific Soviet actions. However, the FUMSAC document now gives historians another line of investigation. And an intriguing question still remains unanswered. What did the CIA tell NASA, and when did they tell them? Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.